This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. In this episode, I interview two backcountry hunters and anglers employees, Tim Brass, the field operations and state policy director, and Trey Curtis, the R3 coordinator. Tim and Trey are good dudes, and I really respect them for coming on when they knew that I was going to ask them some pretty tough questions. Um, I recorded this episode a few months ago, and if I was to have Tim and Trey on now, I would have even more tough questions. I pieced together recently that one of BHA's corporate sponsors, Go Hunt, has expanded their business to include selling outfitter-sponsored tags. So they're contributing directly to the commodification of game and the privatization of wildlife. And another one of their sponsors, Onyx, is writing articles teaching people that use their mapping software how to use it to find hunting leases and lock everybody else out. I'm a lifelong member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and it's alarming to me that they're accepting money from companies and promoting companies that are antithetical to everything that led me to support them. And I encourage you to contact BHA and ask them to stop accepting money from companies that go against the better interest of people that rely on publicly accessible land for their hunting. Not to mention asking them to stop being the advertising arm for the hunting industry and abandon the sham that is R3. To encourage you to reach out to BHA and have your voice heard, I'm going to read some emails I've received in the last few months from hunters, young and old, from around the country, expressing concern about the lost opportunity and crowding that has resulted from R3 and other forms of profit-motivated hunting promotion. One listener writes, I read your interview in the Wisconsin Outdoors newspaper that I get. It was the most refreshing and telling and telling it like it is interview, period. Finally, someone sees the big picture with all this, quote, we need more hunters BS, unquote. I have a support system that I can finally interact with. Before I get too carried away, I'm 71, still hunting with a longbow recurve, mostly on the ground here in overhunted public land and a military fort in Wisconsin. I hate the crossbow in archery season, and I don't need to hear the phony I'm physically unable line that plays out all too often. I have a permanent ruptured bicep tendon on my right arm and still shoot, quote, trad, unquote, bow in the 40 to 50 pound range. I have fought for years and always been alone when it comes to protecting the hunt and the over-promoting DNR that our state is cursed with and the sleazy hunting industry. I could go on. I do hope you get back in touch, looking to support and defend what hunting should be about. 
If you don't mind, I will give you my phone number as it works best for me to finally touch base with someone that has the guts and courage to stand up to the, quote, we need more hunters hype, unquote. Take care, keep fighting, and on board with you. Another listener writes, I believe social media and hunting shows have changed hunting culture negatively to a degree. I myself have contributed on social media in sharing photos of harvested game. After after listening to your podcast, I have changed my view. I believe the Meat Eater brand has changed hunting, specifically Western hunting. I believe that it has impacted hunting Western states as a non-resident for the rest of my life. Tags are harder to come by. Trailheads are full of people trying to copy what they watch on the show. It sucks. I feel bad passing blame on them. And to be fair, other brands like them. But by and large, they have changed hunting Western states. It's too crowded. States are changing their policies because of it. We used to hunt Idaho every year. Now policy has changed and it's very difficult for a non-resident to get a tag, especially in, re- in decent units. I'm with you, just my opinion, but I do agree. I cannot, it cannot be denied that they have impacted it negatively. This listener writes, I live in a small town in central Utah and I have seen a dramatic change in hunting pressure and in drawing tags in general recently. The points required to draw just a general season deer tag have pretty much doubled over the last few years. To hunt deer with a rifle, you're looking at at four to six years in between tags. The only over-the-counter big game opportunity left is spike elk tags, and there has been discussion of making even that a draw. I'm in my late 20s and worry that I'll spend the majority of my life only being able to hunt any type of big game once or twice a decade. Another listener writes, you could not be more correct in your analysis of the negative impact from social media, its detrimental impacts ripple across society with the outdoors simply another causality. Particularly as it pertains to young hunters and fishermen, it sets them on a path of validation from strangers and narcissism that will be a monumental task to pull them away from. In the Florida Keys where I primarily fish, all it takes is one photo on social media of a tarpon jumping in a spot, and the following day you have a string of boats anchored up like a beach party. If you hear old timers talk about tarpon migration spots along the Florida coastline, there are entire stretches more than 10 miles long that fish simply no longer swim to due to pressure very similar to elk, just ignoring public land altogether. Pheasant hunting in Iowa is the same nonsense, with 10 trucks trying to hunt the same 125 acres. If I see a truck pulled in, I honor it and move on, but the same courtesy is only repaid roughly half the time. I know Pheasants Forever and other organizations mean well, but to your point, adding new hunters must not come at the expense of materially reducing the quality of the hunt for existing hunters. Another listener writes, I did some bear hunting over the weekend and had some time to listen to your podcast on my drive there. Arriving at the trailhead confirmed everything you've been saying, as well as my own thoughts on the glorification of Western hunting. I started hunting black bear here in Montana about six years ago. I don't remember ever seeing anyone out hunting bears in 2016. 
Since then, it seems to get worse every year. Had a guy shoot a bear I was in the middle of stalking two years ago, and this year when I arrived at the trailhead, there were about a dozen vehicles there, and I ran into several sets of hunters in a pretty hard-to-reach location. The hunting quality and the overall experience seems to get worse every year on public, public land. I'm not sure exactly what the solution is, but I'd like to do my part in some way to slow this beast down before it's too late. This listener writes, I am a Wyoming transplant that grew up hunting with my dad, grandpa, and little brother in Delta region of Arkansas. It all started with the monetization of waterfowl hunting around Strutgard, Arkansas, where I grew up. The guided duck hunt wasn't really a thing until the 90s. Today, there are guys that are paying upwards of 50K for prime holes in flooded timber. Can you imagine that? 50,000 fucking dollars a year for a damn duck. Honestly, a lot of that was driven by poverty in the area. Year after year, I watched the public hunting grounds we loved go steadily downhill. You couldn't pay me enough today to even attempt to put a boat in at the shooting grounds on Bio Metro or the White River National Refuge. I've witnessed fist fights over who puts their boat in first. People will shoot their shotguns over other guys' head and rain shot down on them just because they are, quote, in their hole, unquote. Sky-busting ducks to screw up another group of hunters is commonplace today. This listener writes, I was born in Kalispell and now live in Missoula and have been exclusively a public land hunter since I was 12 years old. Like many, when hunting TV like Meat Eater and fresh tracks really started to blow up. I embraced and enjoyed it and also started following on the social media sites. I believed that this sort of exposure was good for hunting because we were always told that hunting was a fading tradition and recruitment was the key to its future. As the 2010 started to unfold, it was quickly evident that a shift was happening in Montana as trailheads became more and more crowded with ever-increasing numbers of -of out-of-state plates. The southwest corner of Montana, a place I know you have enjoyed, was once by far my favorite elk hunting area due to the great hunting, but more so the ability to hunt a week without seeing another soul. Now I rarely go there anymore due to the vehicles packed in at every trailhead and an ever-increasing number of said vehicles being fully wrapped in the company name and sponsorship of yet another bullshit quote, outdoors, unquote, brand. This listener writes, Quick note of support. You can see through the BS that is hunter recruitment and see it for what it is, e.g. creating a product consumer base. The next listener writes, R3, we agree. I do believe in new hunters, but as you described it, It should be through an organic process. The one thing I know we could do better as hunters is making ourselves more available to interested folks. There are some steep barriers to entry for people getting started. The next listener writes, Hey Matt, huge fan of the show and what you're doing. I live in the upper Midwest and crowding has been an issue for us here as well as the past couple of years. If I had to guess, it's probably because of this strange new marketing fad social media has portrayed. And the last listener writes, first want to start 
off by saying I appreciate the podcast. To be brief, I live in the Twin Cities and the overcrowding of the local areas, parenthetically two hours or so radius, has become drastic to the point of being reasonably unsafe. As a result, seven plus hour drive now is what I do to get to an area that has relatively low pressure. I really like getting these emails from people and hearing their stories, so I encourage listeners to contact me. Also, I want to start putting some photographs on my website showing what a typical trailhead looks like on public land these days uh, in terms of crowding. So if you have have any photos that you can share or can take in, in the upcoming weeks and months as we get into hunting season of trailheads with a zillion trucks at them, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, and I'd, I'd like to showcase what what is going on with uh, publicly accessible hunting in terms of crowding um, on my website. So please keep that in mind and send me any photos you got. Okay, and with that, um, we'll jump into my conversation with Tim and Trey. All right, I'm here with Trey Curtis and Tim Brass from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Thanks, guys, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Thanks for having us, Matt. Uh, so I wanted to start out by getting a sense for what you guys do on a day-to-day basis for BHA. You want to go first? Yeah, I'll go for it. So I'm the R3 coordinator for BHA, and so... I help our chapters and college clubs with um, education, learn to hunt type events, um, also offer support um, to our armed forces initiative coordinator as well as they do a lot of those types of events. Um, What's that? Armed forces initiative. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a newer program under BHA um, that, you know, seeks to um, give folks within the, armed forces or veterans, um, uh, an introduction to, uh, hunting or conservation. And so it looks a a few different ways and there's, um, there's clubs on, um, different facilities, uh, within the armed forces. Um, then they also do events, everything from, um, stewardship projects to learn to hunt type events where they're trying to engage, um, you know, again, active duty and veteran community members um in hunting and conservation okay so how would you break it down between people coming to bha and saying hey i want to learn how to hunt versus activities that are like and in like ginning up interest in hunting Oh, I think that's a good question. I would, uh, you know, Tim may be able to answer here. I would say the mo- most people come to BHA just through our work and learning about us in ways other than marketing learn to hunt programs. And so I'd say whether it's through stewardship projects or pint nights, for example, storytelling events, folks that have already garnered interest in hunting or conservation or understanding where their food comes from or where they might be able to source their own protein. Um, they're already kind of coming to BHA or they're already looking for, um, 
a group to support that that peaked interest. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to add there, but I, I would say yeah. the vast majority. Yeah, I'm happy to respond. And I guess uh, for introduction on the state policy and field operations for BHA and work with our field team, chapter coordinators uh, and the programs team, Trey and others, um, to help provide support on a wide range of, of efforts that we're engaged uh, on, whether that be, you know, events or um, policy um, or uh, some, of the, some of the programs. So with regards to your question, Matt, um, we, we do an annual membership survey where we ask our members how long they've been hunting. Um, and if I remember right, this last year or somewhere around 18% of our members were had, had hunted less than four years um, or were not hunters already. Um, so if you're looking for kind of a, a hard number, um, that's, that's what we found. I draw a major distinction, I guess, between helping people that have somehow developed a legitimate interest in learning how to hunt, which is something I've done my whole life. And I think you, I often say you kind of have to be a, a bit of an asshole to not help somebody learn how to hunt that came to you with a legitimate interest and activities that are, that are uh, geared towards manufacturing interest in hunting. So that's why I'm going down this line with this line of questioning. I, I feel more warmly towards BHA, the more I learned that people are coming to you to learn how to hunt because they somehow have an interest versus um, BHA playing a role in, in creating the interest, which is something I have a lot of problems with because of, of what I take the dominant issue in hunting to be in America today, which is, which is crowding. So that's why I guess I'm asking what, what specifically would you say are things that it sounds like pint nights would be a way in which BHA creates interest in hunting. Like, Oh, let's go down and listen to a storytelling event. And then people would be like, well, wow, that looks, sounds like fun. That story you told about hunting. Now I'd like to go hunting. So is there, do you think it's like 50% that and 50%, uh, my grandpa used to hunt and I'm thinking about trying to get my own meat who can teach me, Oh, here's this group. I'm going to reach out to them. Yeah. Which of those ways in which you engage with non-hunters is more, more prevalent. Like somebody has this develops this organic interest in hunting and comes to you or they go to an event or follow you on social media and it's kind of like an advertising thing and then you bring them into hunting that way yeah i mean it, it's tough to answer i mean we don't have the numbers on what percentage learned about hunting through bha but you know purely anecdotally i would i would venture to guess that most of these people already have that interest and then they learn about bha whether it's through storytelling event 
um, a pint night, uh, a stewardship project that we're doing on the ground, um, something along those lines, or they hear about us on you know another podcast. Um, I would I would venture to guess the majority come to us with a with a, an already peaked interest in hunting. Yeah, uh, it, if I was, I guess if I was king of BHA, because I believe that crowding is the dominant issue in hunting today. Um, I think it's so bad that like, if you were to graph on the X axis, you had number of hunters and on the Y axis, you had satisfaction that was brought to people through hunting. We're long past the point where increasing the number of hunters increases the overall satisfaction that hunting brings society. I think it decreases it at that point because it's that bad. Um, I also think that we're at a point now where the crowding is rendering public lands. Um, excuse me. Sorry, I turned my phone off. Um, rendering public lands like public land habitat inhospitable to wildlife you could have the most beautiful looking habitat imaginable in terms of in terms of uh, bedding cover and feed and water and everything that animals could want but it ceases to be good habitat when there's a freaking orange vest on every single ridge so like that's the premise that I'm operating, that I operate from, is that crowding is way, way big, a, a huge problem that's largely ignored by the nonprofits and by the hunting industry and by hunting celebrities. So like if I was king of BHA, it would be, there'd be something on the website that was like, if you want to learn to hunt, call this number. And that would be about, that'd be about the extent of it. And if you called that number, they set you up with a mentor, you know, I don't know whether I'm not, um, I'm going to get any traction with this podcast, but if I do, because, because I think that crowding is the dominant issue and R three increases crowding. I just don't know what I'm going to tell people about whether or not they should support BHA. So I'm hoping that one thing that comes out of talking to you guys is a better sense of what I should do with that. Um, so where, I mean, BHA is, wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the, if there wasn't some perceived problems um, yeah. facing the hunting community, right? Yeah. So what are those problems and where do you guys rank crowding among them? It's a really good question. And I guess I would maybe speak more for the membership base uh, with regards to that question, Matt. And again, I'm going back to our membership survey and, and when we, when we ask our members, you know, what, what they'd like to see BHA doing more of, 
um, public access is always at the top of the list. And I think that that speaks to, you know, some of the some of the issues that you you're um, alluding to there. Uh, also, to your point about the crowding issue, maybe not necessarily um, being prioritized. There is actually some recent survey data that has come out of the R3 community, um, which is showing that that hunters are are concerned about crowding and it does impact their experience and they they are they are prioritizing that so i think in terms of how we address that you know as an organization tackling the issues and expanding public access to and and and, and on state uh, state and federal lands has always been a, a major priority for BHA. Um, so I would say, you know, that is one way we're, we're working to try to tackle that, whether that be, you know, by unlocking um, inaccessible lands in corn, through corner crossing in Wyoming, or, you know, working on the expansion of half a million acres of state trust lands um, where I live in Colorado. Um, or, you know, working to safeguard uh, access to our waterways. We recently won a, a court case down in um, New Mexico um, where, with a bunch of other partners um, that guarantees, you know, public access to fish. Um, and, and, you know, um, so anyway, we keep going down that list, but um, I think public access is huge. And then the second um, point that I would make there is, you know, our, the, our work on habitat conservation, I think, is is equally as, as important um, in making sure that we are advancing policy um, that helps put some limits on the, the losses that we're seeing uh, of habitat across the country. I just pulled up in some, some numbers here between 2004 and 2009. We've lost more than 62,000 acres of wetlands um, and we're losing over 2 million acres of grasslands every year. Um, and so whether that be, you know, working to reestablish uh, our, the waters of the U.S. Um, rule, which helps protect some of those, those isolated wetlands, or whether that be, you know, on the grasslands front, helping um, move the North American Grasslands Act forward in Congress, um, or you know, giving our state fish and wildlife agencies the funding they need to help safeguard some of that habitat through the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which would provide nearly a billion dollars a year um, to our state fish and wildlife agencies. I think there's a pretty good list of of ways that we're trying to address that, um, and you know, just just taking a step back. I mean, speaking personally. You know that 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 loss of wetlands really hits home for me. Um, you know the wetland that I grew up waterfall hunting um, through through a, a family friend. Uh, you know I have vivid memories of watching you know watching my grandpa on the shore as I sat on a on a muskrat house and popped off ducks. You know cupped up over my head and my grandpa like cheering me on from the shore. He was, he was already kind of too old to wade out on and sit on a muskrat house um, like I was. Um, but, you know, that wetland's gone. They drain tiled it and 
you know, I, I think as we've lost some of that habitat, you know, hunters do get pushed on onto, um, you know, a, a smaller a portion of, of lands. But I think the way we address that is, you know, by, by advancing policies like the Great American Outdoors Act, right? Where we have this huge pot of funding now. Yeah, I'm, I'm on all on board with all of those sorts of things. I think that those things are, I mean, anything that Im improves habitat, increases access, I'd say is largely not controversial in, in the hunting community. But I don't see like, when you talk about, when you talk about all the habitat that's been destroyed, it sure seems to me that that seems like a, a very, very excellent, good reason to not be trying to bring more people into hunting. Um, that, 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 that see like, to me, that's like, oh, great. Well, let's encourage people to do other things that are good for them. Um, well, and, and there's no clinical evidence that hunting is good for you. Um, there's clinical evidence that yoga is and meditation and eating right. Um, <laughs> and, and exercise and, and athletics. So like, why not recruit people into those things instead of trying to recruit them into a pastime? that's already overcrowded, crowded, and, and, and the opportunity for it is, is declining. I mean, I do believe that BHA is doing important work um, in helping maintain habitat and maintain access, but all's your, all's at, at best, the non BHA and the other nonprofits are just slowing the decline in habitat and access at best. Um, they're not increasing it all over the course of, of my life as a, as, as a hunter, there's no question about it that access and habitat have declined dramatically. Um, so I just, I guess, you know, I'd say that I wrote this article that was critical of trying to recruit more hunters and, um, you know, in reading the comments on that, I'd say at least 50% of people agree with me that, that they, that they agreed that we should move away from R3. Uh, I talked to Mark Norquist from modern carnivore a couple of weeks ago, and he thinks that more than 50, it's well more than 50% that of hunters that think we should move away from R3. Um, the people that support it, I would guess probably hunt private land. So it doesn't really affect them. So I guess the question is, how, how do you square increasing crowding, which is what by definition R3 does, that it increases the number of hunters other hunters see? How, how, do, you, how do you square like ethically doing that when there's so, a huge number of people that don't want it? I would, I would say uh, it's, kind, it's kind of tricky because I wouldn't assume that R3 is the reason for crowding. Crowding is certainly an issue. And as we, we talked about earlier, the majority of people that I'd assume are coming into these R3 type events, I mean, we'll call them what they are, they're learn to hunt type events, um, are coming to BHA because they're already interested, as we talked about. And it, it seemed like there was, um, you know, some, some common understanding that 
uh, I guess the way, the way I'm trying to phrase this is those folks are already coming into hunting. And if you think about all those folks coming in, they could go a multiple multitude of different ways. They could, uh, you know, go to other organizations, go to different agencies. And the way I see it is that BHA has this net that we can cast out, but we can catch those people that are already coming into the hunting realizing that BHA is a, you know, a conservation advocacy organization. We're trying to create more conservation advocates. You know, we see it as a way to reach some of those new people that are already on their way to learn to hunt, where we can also teach them about crowding, the lack of access, um, uh, you know, habitat improvements. Um, and as we kind of talked about before we started recording this is, is hunter behavior, which is a huge one. Um, and we see it as a way that, that we can influence um, these new hunters, offer them an in-depth uh, understanding of ethics around hunting and etiquette in the field, the history of conservation, um, and uh, you know, just moreover, the, the, the importance that, that hunting can and has played on conservation in North America. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a sense of maybe in which maybe the 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 R3 movement is just the the word maybe the in some sense maybe the vocabulary is just terrible like but i mean if you, you are you guys familiar with the the practitioners guide to hunting fishing sport shooting and archery recruitment retention and reactivation. Yeah, I am. Green okay. book, right? Yeah, it's like a 502 page tome devoted to getting people more more people hunting. And, and according to that, like in the opening pages, it kind of defines our three. It says programs, outreach initiatives, and other strategies to recruit and retain and reactivate recruit retain and reactivate sportsmen and women so like when i think of recruit i'm thinking of like when i was in high school um and the army recruiter would call my house and try to convince me to join the military um as opposed to like going down to an office and signing up on my own because I desired to do so, you know? So, and so it's like, when I read that programs, outreach initiatives and other strategies to recruit, retain and reactivate sportsmen and women, it seems like either what you're saying BHA does is not what the practitioner's guide is advocating for or, or it is what the, you are doing what the guide advocates for, and it is trying to gin up interest in hunting. I think it's a, it's a really good question, Matt. And I think it depends on like how we're defining some of these efforts. And, and I guess a question back to you is, you know, a lot of the surveys have shown that a lack of time is one of the barriers that families face in, in heading a field. And, uh, you know, 
is BHA engaging in the, the recruitment and retention of new hunters by addressing some of those time barriers, which would probably apply to both new hunters and old hunters alike. Um, if we are advancing policy like repealing the ban on Sunday hunting out east, um, which we have been having a whole lot of traction with, um, and um, you know, I think that is a very it's a very very popular um, effort and. I think it'll go a long ways to, to giving folks an opportunity to spend a full weekend, you know, with their friends or their, their dads or um, moms, you know, in, in the woods. Um, and so I guess, it, I guess it's just a kind of a question around like, how are we defining R3 and, and which efforts would be lumped in within the, you know, that, that bucket, it can be pretty broad. Um, I mean, you could even argue that, um, yeah, anyway, I'll just stop there and, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not even sure that I'm, I'm not even sure that I, I am, that I'm for, um, the nonprofit simplifying acts, uh, simplifying the process of getting into hunting at this point, because. Um, again, because it's a saturated pastime, or maybe maybe it's something that that just friends and family should do is help people learn to hunt. Um, I do I do have concerns that it is that it isn't just entirely like I, I that it's not entirely just helping people that already have an interest. Um, because of things like um, BHA's social media presence, there's a lot of like it seems it seems like attractive content that would make you know people want to be like, oh, there's a guy with his deer, and now he's got some chili. I want to be like him, you know. So that seems to be kind of like advertising to get people into hunting. Plus, BHA is cozied up with a lot of hunting personalities and it'd be pretty hard to argue that hunting social media and certainly hunting tv aren't recruitment engines you know and then i'm also extremely concerned that some of what might be behind bha's efforts to recruit hunters might it might be that it's partly an expectation a demand of the companies that donate to bha um i i heard an employee from bha say a while back that that your corporate sponsors wouldn't like it very much if you backed off r3 um a while back i don't know if you guys heard about this but one of your volunteer board members drunk texted me and told me that Montana BHA had voted to cease R3. Did you hear about this? I, and I went and talk, talked about it on a podcast. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a couple of things there as far as like, well, I, I was just like, let me, had you heard about that? Um, yeah. 
yeah, yeah we've heard about that yeah so um and he told me with a lot of specificity he even said that there was a bha employee on that phone call that was that was not happy about this vote it like he, he had enough detail in that i had no reason to question that it had happened so i talked about it on the, a podcast where a lot of people heard about it and um then bha had to really walk it back and i heard that a lot of empl- bha empl- employees were upset because and this is a quote quote uh bha quote fundraises off r3 so i have this concern that part of the reason not just bha but all the nonprofits are involved in r3 is because well for one thing more members is, is more dues paying members but more than that if you recruit more people into hunting these are people that are starting out with zero gear uh, so they're a windfall for the companies that sponsor the nonprofits. Um, yeah, I would I would put it in a little bit different way there, Matt. I mean, I think that why we engage, I would bring it back to the North American model of wildlife conservation. And within that, you know, our state fish and wildlife agencies are essential in, in, in making sure that they have adequate funding to uh, help manage uh, our fish and wildlife populations. Um, you know, this model is been been super successful and a lot of the state fish and wildlife agencies are are concerned that you know uh, declines which you know is maybe uh not i mean it's it's more of a serious problem in in some areas than others um but but declines in in revenue and license sales uh for those state fish and wildlife agencies well okay okay on average i mean as a whole funding right. is is through the freaking roof i mean yeah i mean at, i think if you look seen... at Pittman, if you look at the pit the graph of Pittman robinson dollars over time it's published in my r3 article you'll see that i mean it it's never been never been better yeah the, uh, so dollars on, for conservation have never been better yeah yeah so on pr dollars i think that's a little bit different as as a a huge chunk of those dollars end up coming from the shooters or just just gun buyers um, and not necessarily hunters. So I think I think it's really important to put an asterisk on that, but you're not wrong in that their agencies are receiving uh, you know a, a windfall um, of, of PR dollars. Um, but I think on on the license the revenue and license sales front, you know there are states who are really struggling with that and had seen some you know long longer term declines i think more recently with covid there i forget what the actual number is it's somewhere around five percent um increase in sales um and so there is you know there has been a little bit of a bump there as well um and there's a lot of question within the 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 community about whether or not that's going to so my my article just so you know it, it predates covid Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Things were, things were looking really good on the funding front, even before COVID. And, you know, I, I want you to finish, but I'll just say, I, I take issue with the premise because like 
the funding is supposedly going to, towards conservation, right? And I think that um, increasing hunters is terrible for conservation at this point for the reasons I already described, that more hunters just renders more public lands inhospitable to wildlife because the crowd, you know, when there's 50 trucks at that trailhead, the surrounding area isn't very good for wildlife. It's like, I think wildlife, <laughs> wildlife in a lot of the areas I hunt and I hunt in a, in a state that's traditionally a very good hunting state. Freaking have PTSD. Yeah. I mean, I think there's different ways to address that. I mean, uh, I don't know your thoughts on you know, working to try to provide new public access on private lands through It'll, it, it would help a bit but like i mean what is it what how many landlocked acres are there in montana like nine hundred thousand. uh inaccessible in montana i think it's 1.9 million yeah but that's trivial compared to how many acres there are which is 30 million so you're talking about like you know what is that seven percent you could increase it you know, it's just not gonna, it'll help a bit. Sure. But what would help more is I believe, um, steps to stop manufacturing interest in hunting to sell products. Um, that's why, but I want to go, I want to go back before, cause we can talk about, we can talk about that aspect some, cause I would like to talk about how the interplay between um, industry and nonprofits a little bit more. Um, but I'm still, I still want to get your take on these comments I hear that the non, that BHA engages in R3 because it's a, because the companies that fund them demand they do. I just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure where you're getting that or who's telling you, but to me, it kind of sounds like a wild accusation. Um, I, don't I, I heard it directly from one of your employees, from one of your coworkers. <laughs> I, I mean, as somebody who leads the, the R3 efforts that, that BHA does, or at least in some capacity helps all of our chapters and college clubs, and in some capacity helps our AFI program, I, I like I can't even begin to speculate where that would be coming from. I mean, it almost, I would, yeah. And we don't have to keep going on much longer. We don't have to keep going on it, but to me, it's, it, it seems, in, it's always seemed entirely plausible on its face that that would be going on. And then when I hear that it is so that when I hear that it is, it's like, it really lends credence to it. But yeah, I'm not really aware of, any any r3 earmark uh corporate partner uh funds uh so i mean i'm I mean, not sure it, i think one note on that and, and i think it's important to note in like all the programs that that i've i've been a part of or helped and and understanding that when when new hunters are surveyed one of the biggest barriers of entry is the cost um and I would say that again, in, in most of these programs and in, in trying to help these folks get from point A to point B and understanding um, how to hunt, you know, we're not pushing them 
to buy brand new gear because it's unreasonable considering that one of the biggest barriers of entry is the cost. And so buying lightly used or gear from um, uh, uh, you know, places that sell used gear um, is a direction that we often point people. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's just that, <laughs> I mean, I have heard it. I, I'm not somebody that's really involved with BHA. And I'm a, a life member, but I used to be a board member. So I'm like, I'm only lightly involved, like, um, in interacting with people that work for BHA. And it's just, even though I only talk to BHA folks once in a while in the last year, three times I've heard, cause I've been vocal about my opposition to be to R three. And I hear three times from people that work from BHA that, um, it's important to your industry sponsors. And then I've heard that also from other, I've also heard that from other nonprofits as well. So I don't know what to the, I don't know the extent to which R three is sacred because of the role of industry in the nonprofits, but I definitely think it's, it's, it's got something to do with it. I mean, I think we've, we've certainly had support from corporate partners on our R3 efforts, but I, it, it be I mean, if you look at R3, who really, who its biggest proponents are, it is the hunting industry. I think it as I mentioned, I mean, would earlier, you agree with that? I, mean, I think the state fish and wildlife agencies are they play a role too but if you look like if <laughs> if if you look at like the shooting sports council and all their partners it's a zillion clothing and gun companies you know so like there is that they are in our three and the hunting industry go hand in hand so i mean the reason this matters to me i guess is because if if uh, the nonprofits are engaged in R three because it's a, a because they're the hunting industry dollars donations come with strings attached, then I start to worry about whether the nonprofits are really serving the hunting community or if they're more concerned with serving the hunting industry. I mean, I think one thing that that could help there too is like taking a look at our. Um our you know, financial reporting that's published on our website and understanding that we've got a pretty diverse set of funding, whether it's corporate partners, membership, um, donors, um, you know, it's, so it, it'd be tough to say that it's just corporate partners pulling the strings for us doing R3 when in fact, the majority of our work isn't R3. The majority of our work is on increasing access, um, habitat work, um, things of that nature. When when R3 is, is, is probably doesn't even come close to the work that we do for habitat and access. Yeah. Um, I just, it's just a, I, I think of it mainly as a lost opportunity because if instead of R3, you could have some other platform, like how about replacing it with the platform instead would be we are going to take steps to lower the economic 
value of wildlife by let's say boycotting hunting tv and and boycotting people that show strangers what they shoot on computers to me like that something like that would have a way better bigger positive impact on the hunting community than r3 like what i see happening now like i think i think we're in the end end times i think that we're become going to become we're heading towards a, a a european or african model of wildlife management it's becoming very much becoming pay to play because all of the social media hype all of the gripping and grinning and trying to get sponsors and becoming try to become famous 40 years of hunting tv that stuff has it's advertising and it's advertising it's it's jacked up the value of unpressured hunting so much that uh people can't help but charge for it so if bha i think would be doing a lot bigger service to the existing public land hunting community the people the constituency that they purport to represent if they stop trying to crowd them out with more hunters and instead walk the dog back and turn hunting back into more of a grassroots activity what, what are your takes on, what are your what's your take on that i have i guess i have one question i don't know if this answers your question matt but or one thought i should say um is going back to the beginning of the podcast if if we take a look at this chunk of folks who are new hunters and are coming to BHA to build a community and, and are coming to BHA, um, you know, to learn more about what these conservation issues are, they would, wouldn't we be better off um, helping cultivate those people into long-term, you know, public land and water um, stewards and, and ethical hunters by providing them, um, you know, the skills needed um, to, you know, take an animal, animal ethically. And Trey, you could probably speak better to the, the specifics around like how you guys have done that than I. Um, but, you know, if those people are out there already, like, I, I totally, I get what you're saying. There's a cost benefit kind of- I'd say a, focus a on the 99%, there. like in Montana, BHA is centered in, I mean, they, uh, their corporate headquarters is in Montana. And no, nonetheless, only 1% of hunters in Montana belong to BHA. So if you want to, instead of, in, instead of bringing people into hunting and then, and we, I can't, I can't quite figure out yet what percentage of your activities is of your R3 activities are what they say they are, which is recruiting, ginning up interest in versus facilitating an interest that already exists. But in either case, um, I'd say it, it, it's kind of convoluted to, well, let's get people interested in hunting and then try to get them to give a shit about access and habitat. Why not instead try to 
instead of trying to recruit more hunters, why don't you try to recruit the existing hunters into BHA and get them engaged in, in fighting for things that matter, matter to the hunting community. It's like takes out one of the steps. I mean, I think, I, I think two things to that point is, you know, as, as we mentioned before, the majority of these folks are already getting into hunting. Um, so we're not, we're not, you know, necessarily marketing directly to them. But then on the, the other side of that coin is if, you know, as you said, 1% of hunters in Montana are BHA members. If we were trying to reach more, which, you know, we are through our efforts, but if we were really going to focus our efforts on, on getting more folks involved, we'd have to do that through marketing campaigns. And the reality is, is that those marketing campaigns would have a bycatch of folks that weren't interested or kind of interested in hunting um, and then bringing them up through, um, you know, the, 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 the ropes to. Well, if you, if you advertised in like in the hunting and fishing regulations, the only people that look at those are people that are already hunting. You could, you could circumnavigate. I mean, there's yeah, gotta be creative. That's one way you could circumnavigate bycatch. I mean, there's gotta be other ways as, as well. I would, I would tend to think. I think one thing that I'd like to bring up in a lot of these programs um, that we've run is at the end of the day, at the end of these programs, there's a lot of interest in hunting. So they come to them. Um, really what we're trying to do is increase or help them begin participating in, but then also just grow support of hunting, angling, shooting sports, conservation. Um, I think back to, we have this program uh, that was started here in Montana um, called Hunting for Sustainability. We partnered with Rocky Mountain Health Foundation, Boone and Crockett Club. Um, that, that, that class or that program is, is now called Wild Sustenance. It's a, it's a course offered at the University of Montana. Um, prior to it being an accredited course, uh, we had a, um, uh, a lady who was a grad student at UM. She came out, it's a three-day workshop on the Boone and Crockett Theodore Roosevelt Memorial Ranch. Um, we go through all the, you know, the, the basics of, of learning to hunt, basic gear, we talk about ethics, the history of wildlife management in North America, conservation principles. Um, we uh, usually get, or we get permission to, to archery hunt whitetail does on the ranch. And so we oftentimes um, are able to, to, to shoot a doe and then walk the students through tracking and then processing. And the entire weekend is kind of centered around, you know, eating wild game as well as an introduction to this. Um, but, um, this, this one gal who, who took the course, um, she was 29 years old. She had never fired a firearm before, had never even touched a gun before. I'd always thought that she was interested in hunting, um, or always thought that she supported it, but she really didn't know why. She just liked the idea of, um, funding conservation, understanding where your food comes from. Um, and at the end of the, uh, course, she wrote an article for the Backcountry Journal, um, I wish I could remember which issue it was, but essentially she laid out that she'll never be a hunter. She never wants to become a hunter, but because of this course, because we were able to um, walk her through the, um, the, the basic principles of hunting and wildlife management, conservation, wild food, um, she will always support hunting. Because of that, when she goes to the ballot box, one of the things that she's going to look at is 
what is this person? What is this person support? Uh, do they support wildlife conservation, hunting, and that's going to make a um, uh, educated decision on who she's going to vote for, or just you know across the board um, when issues or conversations come up, she's going to support hunting because of that. And so one thing that I try to think about when we host these programs is not just at the end of it just trying to create licensed buyers but also just trying to create support for hunting, angling, the shooting sports. Um, and, you know, and, and truthfully, Matt, you know, as a hunter, I don't think that I would care about habitat or wildlife or conservation if I was not a hunter. And so when I think about trying to engage people in, in caring for habitat for wildlife, and there certainly are a lot of people that do that aren't hunters, um, it's certainly from my perspective going to be a lot harder to get these people engaged unless they have a stake in it through hunting. Yeah. That, and again, but I think that, yeah, we just, we just, we just come to different conclusions in that I think the worst thing that could happen to have it right now in much of the country is more hunters. Do you guys think it's crowded? I think it really depends. I mean, I live in a, in a super populated area, the Denver metro area. There is a ton of people there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think the state fish and wildlife agencies have just, you know, needed to use different management approaches to try to address some of those crowding issues, for example. So like there's state wildlife areas close to my house where you know, in order to hunt them, you do need a, you need a reservation or you need to go through a lottery, for example. Um, yeah, that's a whole other thing. It's like, it, you have to put in, you have to, you have to draw, like that's, isn't that a sign that we don't need to recruit more hunters? Is that you have to like enter into a lottery system to do it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think that, applies to tags too right like you ought to apply for a tag. yeah that's what i'm saying that too like <laughs> the, 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 the demand for hunting so outstrips the supply that it's a lottery system and people freaking play the the lottery game all over the entire country to try to get an opportunity to hunt or they do what i do which is hunt on over the counter tags and deal with 50 trucks at the parking lot, which is not an exaggeration. I've been at several trailheads in the last year, a couple few years where it's, and this is predates COVID as well, you know, 30 to 50 trucks. Yeah. I mean, on the flip side. So I don't know. I, I guess came... like, do you guys think it's crowded? Do you see, am I like, am I just making terrible decisions and where I go on? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. No, I came out to Eastern Montana this last year and, uh, we hunted some block management as well as some public land and I, dude, we only saw like two bird hunter two other bird hunters the entire time we were out there it was with my dad um it was a great trip found a bunch of birds and um i you know i think it it really depends on where you are all right tell me tell me you don't you don't have any stories like i'm describing oh yeah i mean it's getting you know over the counter archery in colorado is definitely getting more crowded and um, you know, the state agency is having to have some pretty tough um, and serious conversations around how that how, how that use is managed. 
Yeah. So uh, it's like, what, 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 so the ma- management agencies are having tough, they're wringing their hands about how to deal with the crowding in Montana. They're talking about shortening seasons or, and, um, and they're, they're talking about like, you have to pick your unit sort of stuff. Um, my friends hunting around mile city, the last several years, the sun's coming up. They got eight or 10 orange vests around them. I, I just, can't square that with i don't see why the nonprofits would even want to be at all associated with trying to make that situation even worse i mean i go to trailheads where there's more vehicles than the forest service ever thought there would be there they're lined up. Trucks are lined up down the road. People are having to get incredibly creative about trying to find a place to to park. And at the same time, this is happening. I I, I have to. It's just strains credulity, but I have to think about. There's this cognitive dissonance. I have to think. Whoa, this is what hunting's become. And still. The nonprofits are trying to, I mean, how many more hunters do you guys want other people to see than what they see now? I guess that's a good way of putting it. Like, when would you be satisfied if it was, if I was seeing a hundred cars, hundred trucks? I mean, I don't know. Would you quit R3 then? <laughs> I mean, like, what do you what do? Point, tell people, like tell people or, they can't hunt? I mean, I... I, uh, like, what if it was know, like, I, oh, you get to hunt every three years. That's what we're going for. Would you stop R3 then? I mean, I, I feel like we need to give everybody that has an interest in opportunity to, to hunt and to, to, I do too, get, but like, uh, it only, but you don't like, you could be, you could, uh, the nonprofits could be trying to, to prevent more interest from emerging. By coming out against hunting TV and hunting social media, where do you where do you guys stand on what do you, what do you think about that idea? Like, what about a version of BHA or a version of a nonprofit that was like we oppose we oppose hunting TV and hunting social media because it's already too crowded and that's a form of advertising that increases crowding. I mean, the crowding issue is not, I I don't think you can say that this is the case across the board, right? There's certain types of hunting that have declined. There's areas you can look at the East and they, they they need more hunters out there. Like Uh, I I don't think that I think there are a lot, a lot of people. So give me some States because give me some States. Well, I'll just use a specific management goal around overpopulated white-tailed deer, for example, where they're given away tags. Like the the issue of well, that um, I mean, that could be like you a could, you could apply that here too. I mean, there's a lot of outfitted ranches where the the rancher is pissed at the outfitter for not shooting enough does. I don't think because there's too many animals that that necessarily means there aren't enough hunters that's that there's not enough access so i'm still wondering what are these states where there's publicly accessible ecosystems just teeming with unhunted game because i 
maybe I'll move there. I just am not aware of any. <laughs> a lot of the eastern states, you could shoot what 10, 12. No. There, there's some there's some areas with overpopulated uh, white-tailed deer, um, for example, and um, yeah. Um, I mean, not where I know, Michigan, not I know Michigan, you can shoot like 10 and I think Wisconsin somewhere, somewhere, uh, in that, uh, you know, similar uh, neck of the woods. I, I, I'll get like, there, there's obviously this is very convoluted. There's a lot that we could dive into. I'll give one brief example though. Like you look at the work that our, uh, Kentucky chapter is doing. Um, there's, um, you know, uh, the Kentucky VHA chapter is teamed up with, I think it's, uh, down there, Kentucky hunters against. Uh, the hungry, um, it might have a different name. I can't remember. Hunter, hunters for the hungry, which is something I, I, I oppose. I can tell it briefly. I oppose it because, um, I, hunting ex is expensive. And if people really want it, were concerned about the hungry, they take the money that they spent hunting and use it to buy food and give it to the hungry people. Um, it's, this hunters for the hungry thing. It's like a, like a form of virtue signaling that like people, that people like that want to kill wantonly. They just want to kill for without any reason or no purpose in mind can just go out and shoot a bunch of stuff and give it away and feel good about themselves. So anyway, I think it's fair to say, but I'll give you an example of where that's just absolutely not the case. Again, going back to the Kentucky chapter, um, there were, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure they were crop damage issue tags to farmers. Um, essentially they weren't even tags. The you know, farmers down there were just killing deer, let lay. They had every legal right to do so. Um, the Kentucky BHA chapter stepped in, saw the opportunity to utilize those deer, um, knowing that there was an increase of interest in hunting, used that, um, as an example to, to introduce people to hunting, shoot one of these deer, either keep it, but I'm pretty sure in this case, all that meat went to Hunters Against the Hungry. Um, that was then donated to the food bank. Um, whereas if that didn't exist, then those deer would have been shot left lay because of crop damage. Why couldn't they just shoot them and, and give them away to the hungry people without more hunters? I don't understand. <laughs> like, why? Why? I don't understand where hunting recruitment comes into that. Well, I, I, I was bringing this up as I think your point on crowding is maybe not, it, it's maybe not as big of a, a problem everywhere. I think in, in some cases, there is ample opportunity, or your question around, like, well, does that mean we got to hunt, you know, only every three years or whatever? I think that's a that's a situation that is fairly unique to um, you know this specific area. I think there's a huge chunk of the country where that's not the case. And yeah, but I would know. argue that I I would argue I have friends that I'm from Michigan, and I can tell you I have friends that hunt their asses off and are lucky if they get one deer. I don't think that they're being game populations being over objective is evidence that there's not enough hunters. I would say that there's a lot of places in this country where if you increase the number of hunters, you'll decre decrease the harvest because you'll, you'll push even more wildlife onto private lands where people can't get them. When I hear about overpopulated game, 
I say, oh, I think, oh, there's a state where it's all leased up and you can't get much access. Not that there, you can't get on any place. Not that there's not enough hunters. So it, it just doesn't count as evidence to me. Is less hunters going to solve the issue of leasing land? Yes, I definitely think so. As you increase the number of hunters, you are increasing the price tag on quality hunting. Then it becomes more profitable for an outfitter to lease it up and sell you access to it or more profitable it, it because with more hunters it's more profitable for the landowner to lease it out directly to the hunter i think that anything that increases the monetary value of quality hunting experiences reduces access it'd be hard to argue otherwise is to argue that advertising doesn't work right i mean isn't isn't arguing that that's not the case the same as arguing that advertising doesn't work i'm not following you man sorry the reason people lease up land to hunt on is because the quality of the hunting isn't as isn't sufficient on public land for them to hunt there right mm, not necessarily I mean, in, in some cases, there is no public land. So leasing is widespread in a state like Texas, um, where they have very long seasons. They have a lot of opportunity. Um, and so there is... Oh, it's, it'd be very difficult to argue that yeah. people don't lease land to increase the quality of their hunting. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, that's, like, I I, that's like the huge reason people do it. Yeah, that's um, right. So I would I say that by increasing the number of hunters, you're decreasing the quality of the hunting on public land, increasing the value of quality hunting, the monetary value of it, so that more people lease up land. So like um in my from my viewpoint, like our three social media hunting social media influencers and hunting TV are free advertising for people that are trying to lease out their land to hunters or to outfitters that are trying to lure in clients to hunt places that they've leased up. I don't see how it could be any other way. If there was nobody hunting public land and you had it all to yourself, nobody would pay like in a state like Montana, nobody would pay a hunting lease be like why would i i got 30 million acres of public i can hunt so increasing hunting numbers definitely leads to the locking up of land yeah i mean i i just would take you disagree and it's, it's so the, how yeah i mean i guess i would just i i think that that maybe applies in some areas but i i would go back to texas being an example of where the public crowding is not I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily the impetus. I think your point about around why people are likely leasing down there, I think is, is valid, but I also think, you know, there's examples just going back to where I live on the front range of Colorado, where 
there, I mean, there's not like public goose hunting fields around the metro area. Therefore, their leasing of those ag lands has become, has, has, yeah, it's unfortunately, it's become, become the norm. I'm with you on it not being. Well, yeah, but I'd say that um, they wouldn't even, those places, you'd be able to go bang on the door and get on if there were less hunters. Yeah. Because there are so many hunters, the landowner charges you to go hunt geese because he has the luxury of doing that. How many, how many less hunters do you think, like, let's use Montana as an example. I mean, and, and you know, I was born and I've lived in Montana my entire life. Um, I've hunted public land elk my entire life. How many less hunters do we need in Montana before leasing stops on private land? Um, well, I'll tell you that in the 80s, the guys that I hang out with in this town out in eastern Montana where I live, remember being able to um, hunt all this land around here and all this ranch land. And now it's, it's by and large, the vast majority of it is leased up. I don't know how many fewer you'd need. I'm just trying to get us to move in the right direction. Um, I'm trying to get us to acknowledge that it's not virtuous or good for the hunting community to try to create more hunters because, well, the many, many, many reasons, but the one we're talking about right now is it leads to it becoming a money game. Um, it leads to like the European model where if you want quality hunting, you pay, you pay for it. So um, I think it's also like, I know one thing, one thing that BHA I've heard in BHA circles is, is there, is I gather that the organization is, is pretty concerned about diversity and equity and inclu inclusivity in hunting is, is that true? Yeah, I think so. So I, that, another thing I think with hunting social media, hunting TV, R3, anything that tries to, that serves as advertising to try to increase hunters. I think it's terrible for, for disaffected groups as well as another major concern I have, because again, it turns it into a pay game, a, a big money thing. And if you look at the wage gap, it's the disaffected groups that are getting priced out of hunting. It's rich white guys that have the hunting waste. You know, when I was a kid, we got permission to hunt by asking farmers at our church. There's no way you'd do that anymore because it's all leased up. So like I say, um, in my mind, anything that does that, that increases the value of quality hunting by drawing more people into it and making public land hunting lower quality is is bad for disaffected groups in my mind what do you guys think about that i mean i i don't i like i said earlier i think that we ought to be giving those underrepresented opportunity or underrepresented communities um the opportunity if they have the interest in pursuing it and so who are we to tell them no 
I'm not saying I'm not I wouldn't tell I in nothing in my agenda ever says tell anybody no what I what I try to get hunters to to act in their own best interest but I think the I think the consequence of trying to either trying to increase hunter numbers or trying to gin up interest in hunting to sell products the consequences of it is it it increases the money it takes to get into hunting and i think that that's probably has a disproportionately negative effect on people on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder hmm. if we increase the number of publicly accessible lands does that help address some of those those issues yeah i think we should be doing both of those things i think we should yeah. be trying we should be we should be discouraging hunting social media if hunters really cared about their own hunting i mean and they do they just haven't pieced it together and that's what i'm trying to get people to do is to put the pieces together if they if they really cared about their their own hunting they'd stop following grip and grinners online stop watching hunting tv because if nobody looked at that stupid shit it'd go away and they should work vigorously for habitat and access where do you guys stand on hunting tv and hunting social media i mean i can't necessarily speak for the organization on that but i can speak as a hunter and i'd agree with the this maybe not necessarily agree with the sentiment but i I can see where you're coming from and would agree that like, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of social media influencers and what I see portrayed on most of hunting television, I really dislike. Um, but I wouldn't say that BHA has a stake in driving those. Yeah. The influencers like, or, or, or TV again, like as a, as a born and raised Montana hunter, um, who's, you know, again, has seen increase in crowding. Maybe I have a little bit different perspective. Um, I think that there are, you know, a lot of issues ongoing in Montana, but I, I don't condone a lot of what I see on social media. I don't condone the majority of what I see on hunting TV. I don't think it represents what actually happens in the field. Um, or I guess, you know, selfishly what I'd like to see happen in the field. Yeah. No, that's fair. I know you're not speaking for, for BHA. Like the goal of this podcast for me is to put out a different vision of hunting. And then I could see it going one of two ways. I could see that it's not a vision that's shared by many people at all. And then I kind of have my answer that my views on what hunting should be are not widely held. And I just need to go about my business, continue to fight for habitat and access, but acknowledge that I have a minority viewpoint when it comes to the major themes that I'm grappling with. But if somehow I gain traction, I'd want, I'd end up, I think I'd end up, I think I end up advocating for a different kind of nonprofit. I'd like to see a nonprofit where there wasn't R3. It probably, I don't know what I would do if 
I could de de design my own nonprofit, what I would do about industry sponsors. I certainly would not want any industry sponsors that, that sponsor hunters on social media. There'd have to be a ton of transparency about what the dollars from the, the hunting industry were being used for. If there was no R3, that would alleviate some of the concerns. I think that a nonprofit that boycotted hunting TV and boycotted hunting social media, they got a nonprofit on their platform was to come again, come out against paying to hunt. One another agenda item would be much better training, maybe even mandatory training. If you want to hunt lands made available, private lands made available through government programs. I wonder if a nonprofit like that would better serve the hunting community. I mean, I think it would be a challenge to get the word out, but um, <laughs> a lot of most folks are on social media these days. And so if you are working to try to advocate for access, um, well, when I say boycott hunting social media, I mean boycott people that show strangers what they shoot on the computer. Oh, gotcha. Not boycott other hunting related content. I mean, we got, I mean, social media is critical for conveying information about issues that are relevant to the hunting community. Well, no, I mean, I think we'd have a lot of common ground and um, I think there'd be plenty of good stuff we could work on and um, on, yeah. You know, I hope that this is, even though we've been having this conversation for a, a while now, um, I hope that, you know, we continue to have this conversation. Um, I, you know, again, I think that we overlap on so many ideals and agree on so many different things that, you know, it's really a minority of what we disagree with um, that, uh, you know, we could get cut up on. But again, I think that we agree on a lot of different things. And so I hope that we can focus on those moving forward and keep the conversation going. And, and you know, I'm, I'm open to the things that we disagree on. And who knows, maybe I'll change my mind. And I think, as you've said before, maybe you'll change your mind. And, you know, maybe we can learn to, to, you know, I guess just do better for hunters, anglers, and conservation habitat in general moving forward. But yeah. No, yeah. No, uh, nothing else these there. these conversations uh, are critical, you know? Yeah. Um, and I really appreciate I, it. Couldn't have been entirely comfortable to know you're coming onto a podcast with some, to talk about somebody that disagrees with <laughs> components of what you do for a living. So it takes a lot of grace to do that. And I really appreciate it. Yeah.